Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Joy Gruitz. Good morning. Good morning. I don't know when Sean said amazing and the theme is pride. I don't know how those two go quite together. Uh, Good morning. As you know, today is the last in our series, last message in our series on slaying the giants. And so far we have addressed the giants of envy and wrath and greed and lust. And today it's pride. And you know, pride is tricky because there's a positive side to pride but also this negative side. And sometimes it's not easy for us to distinguish between the two. Now back in May, I had the opportunity of attending a middle school awards assembly at Oakland Christian School for two of my grandchildren. And as I sat in the bleachers, I was one proud grandma as I watched Joel and Caitlin receive several academic awards. And one special award that Caitlin received was the Chaplain's Award. And this is an award given to one student in each grade who shows a devotion towards the study of the Bible. Now you know how proud that made me feel. And then at the climax of the assembly, they had all of the eighth graders, which included Joel, to come forward. And then they invited the parents, and in my case, grandparent, to come forward and to lay our hands upon our students and pray a prayer of blessing over them. Again, it was such a proud moment for me to be able to pray this prayer of blessing over Joel. You know, when you go to the dictionary and look up the word pride, you find many definitions, but the definition of the kind of pride I felt that morning is this. It says it's a feeling of pleasure, of satisfaction or happiness that comes from some relationship, association, achievement that is seen as a source of honor. You know, I have nine grandchildren, and I'm not just proud of Joel and Caitlin, but their older brother, Owen, and their cousins, Scarlett, Eli, Emmy, Marcus, Max, and Cleo. I got them covered. (laughs) And you see, we can take pride in the accomplishments of someone we know or those we love. We can take pride in the way they are handling a situation or the kind of character they're developing. We can have that deep satisfaction and happiness that comes for what we achieve or how we do a job that's well done. Even the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the Corinthians believers these words. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says, I have the highest confidence in you, and I take great pride in you. You have greatly encouraged me and made me, what, happy despite all our troubles. To the believers in Thessalonica, he said, we are proud of you and tell the other churches about you. But you see, the question that we need to address this morning is when does pride cross the line and become a giant that needs to be slain. The kind of pride that both the apostles, Peter and James, talked about in their letters that they wrote to the churches, they used exactly the same words that were inspired by a proverb that was given to King Solomon, to whom God gave a gift of wisdom. Look at what they wrote in both of their letters. It says, God opposes the proud. 
Now this Greek word that is translated oppose is antitasso, and it means to set oneself against. It comes from an old military term where they would take soldiers and put them in a very planned array and a planned strategy in order to battle and to resist. And so we are seeing that this is the kind of pride that God opposes when we look at what God gave as a proverb to King Solomon. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty or proud spirit before a fall. And one of the most blatant examples of this kind of pride that God opposes wasn't first committed by a man or a woman, but it was committed in the spirit world by an angel, an angel called Lucifer. And we read about Lucifer as he is described in the books of Ezekiel and Isaiah. And we catch a glimpse of what Lucifer was like, how God created him, when we begin to look in Ezekiel 28. It says, you were the signet of perfection. You were full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. With this poetic description, we get a sense of the perfection with which God had created Lucifer, a perfection in beauty, a perfection in splendor, a perfection of wisdom. Then it goes on in verse 14 to say, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in the ways in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Lucifer was called an anointed cherub. Now when we think of cherub, oftentimes our minds automatically go to the way cherubs are depicted in fine art that we find through our, uh, in our museums throughout the world, such as this painting by Raphael, a Renaissance painter. And so he pictures cherubs as chubby baby angels. <laughs> but when you look at the scriptures, cherubs are not chubby baby angels. They are mighty guardian angels. And Lucifer was an anointed one. Not only had he created him with this perfection of beauty and wisdom, but it says that he walked among the stones of fire which means he walked in a place of authority among the angels. God had not only bestowed upon him great wisdom and beauty, but a place of authority among the angels in this spirit world. In fact, some theologians offer the premise that Lucifer was this great worship leader who offered the worship of all the angels unto God. But there arose a problem with Lucifer. Something happened because the scripture says he is perfect, he was perfect until unrighteousness was found in him. So what was the sin that he committed that made him unrighteous? Look at verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. 
You corrupted your wisdom for sake of your splendor. You see, Lucifer took his eyes off God and he began to look at himself, at his beauty, at his splendor, at his talents, at his place of authority, and he became full of pride. And pride began to corrupt his reasoning, his way of thinking, where instead of praising God, he wanted to be praised. He wanted to sit on that place of authority that belonged to God and God alone. And it was that sin of pride that led him to make that choice to defy God and attempt to unseat God from his throne of authority. And so we see the destruction or the result that came from that sin of pride in Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, above the angels. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will sit on God's throne. I will make myself like the most high. Instead of praising God in humble adoration for the favor and the anointing that God had bestowed upon him instead of praising God for that perfection of beauty and ability, he became full of pride. And it led to his fall from heaven. For even Jesus refers to this moment when he speaks to 72 of his disciples and he says this in Luke. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven as the eternal son of God, before his incarnation as Jesus, he saw Lucifer be cast from heaven and it wasn't some gentle push. It was the power of lightning that strikes the earth. So was Satan cast from God's presence. You see, it was the giant of pride that led to Lucifer's fall and one day will lead to his ultimate destruction, that place of eternal torment in hell. <clears throat> But the giant of pride that leads to destruction, this sinful pride that God opposes, was not just a problem in the spirit world. It is one that's been a problem in our world. We can see it documented in our history books, and poignantly we find it even in our scriptures. One such example is found in 2 Kings, where the poison of pride affected the heart of one of the greatest kings in the land of Judah. The king was called Hezekiah. Look at what the scriptures say about him. 2 Kings 18. He, Hezekiah, did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David. I mean, he's being compared to David. Then it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. That is a remarkable commendation especially when you consider who his king or who his father was his father was king ahaz and king ahaz did what was evil in the lord's sight he promoted idolatry he participated in the detestable practice of child sacrifice he tore down all of the, all of the um, altars that were um, built for the lord he shuttered the temple in Jerusalem, he desecrated everything that was in it. But when Hezekiah became king, he purged the land of idolatry. He removed the shrines, he destroyed the sacred pillars, he cut down the Asherah poles, 
He opened up the temple doors, had everything sanctified. He reinstated the Levitical priesthood and even the celebration of the Passover. And throughout his reign, he learned to trust in the Lord and God blessed him. He blessed the land of Judah. They had victory on the battlefield. But then we read there's a moment of time where it's a time of peace and prosperity where pride became a giant in Hezekiah's life. You see, God had just miraculously healed Hezekiah from a terminal illness. And the son of a Babylonian king hears that Hezekiah had been sick, and so he sends some of his emissaries to Judah with a get well card and a gift for Hezekiah. And so this is what we read in 2 Kings. It says, Hezekiah received or welcomed these envoys, showed them all that was in his house, storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. And God saw what Hezekiah did. And so he sent his prophet Isaiah to speak to Hezekiah. And so when Hezekiah says, well, what did you do when these Babylonian foreigners came to Judah? He said this, they saw everything. I showed them everything I own, all my royal treasures. Do you notice where he says, he showed them everything what I own? all my treasures. You see, the poison of pride had affected his heart. It wasn't about glorifying God. That's not why he showed those Babylonians everything that was in the kingdom. It was all about glorifying himself. He had become prideful. And because of that pridefulness, Isaiah said one day those Babylonians are going to use all of that vital information you showed them and one day they will come and Judah will be destroyed and all of those treasures that you said are my own are going to be carried to Babylon. The fall and destruction of this kingdom would come because Hezekiah allowed pride to become a giant in his life, a giant he failed to recognize and acknowledge, and a giant he failed to slay. And what happened to Hezekiah can happen to us. Where pride poisons our heart, where we seek to glorify ourselves by pointing to the things we possess, to the achievements we accomplish, to the positions of authority we attain. You see, the danger is when we cross the line from being proud of to becoming prideful. Proud of giving glory to God and being prideful, pointing the glory to ourselves. This is why it is so important that we heed this warning that is given by Paul to the Christians in Rome. Romans 12, 3, he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now understand, God is not saying that we are to go around with a, an inferiority complex, low self-esteem, and demeaning ourselves. No, what Paul is saying, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. That's when pride becomes the giant. 
when we begin to take credit for doing what God has gifted us to do, where we take credit for the blessings that God has blessed us with when we begin to point the glory to ourselves. You see, we can be proud of a business we start, of a ministry we're involved in. We can be proud of musical talents or artistic ability or athletic skills that God has gifted us with. We can be proud of our mathematical prowess, our literary ability. We can be proud of those achievements, those that we have accomplished or those of our children or our grandchildren. But where we have to be careful is when what we share we are proud of or who we are proud of is not just about sharing the joy and that happiness. But it is when we share what we are proud of and who we are proud of with the underlying motivation to impress others and elevate ourselves above others. It's when we become prideful about what we are proud of. Now David, he used one stone to slay Goliath. So what is the stone that we can use to slay this giant of pride. It's the stone of humility. The kind of humility that was exemplified in the life of another king. A king who never lived in a palace, sat on a throne, who never had any storehouses filled with gold and silver and precious oil. He was a king who exemplified humility even though he was the son of God. You know, in the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, we read some incredible scriptures about the kind of humility that Christ exemplified, the kind of humility that slays the giant of pride. Look at what we read in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. In other words, he starts out by saying, we are to have the same way of thinking the same kind of attitude in our relationships with the people that God brings into our lives. And this is the mindset we are to have. Who, speaking of Jesus, being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being born as a human being. In another translation, it says, even though he was God, he did not, he did not think that equality with God was something to cling to. I want you to think for a moment what it meant for God the Son to put aside his divine rights, his divine glory, his omnipresence, to be incarnated and to accept the limitations of a human body. Remember, he was an integral part of the, of the triune work of creation. Look what it says in Colossians 1. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He's talking about Christ. 
the infinite son of God, whose omnipotence was on display when the heavens and earth were created, he willingly entered humanity with all of its finite limitations. He was fully divine, but he was fully human, and that required humility. And what I find astounding is that the omnipotent Son of God didn't enter humanity as an adult ready to minister. Instead, he who was all-powerful entered humanity as an infant, a powerless infant who had to be cared for. That's amazing humility. And if he had to be born as an infant, then at least be born into a family of wealth and prominence and social standing, maybe into the family of a high priest. But no, he's born to a simple virgin girl who's engaged to a common man. But the extent of Christ's humility goes beyond the humbling that was required in order to be incarnated. Let's go back to Philippians 2. It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. One translation says he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross would not be a heroic death fought on a battlefield. His death would take place on a despised criminal's cross where the king of kings would be mocked and and ridiculed by the very people he came to save. And so Paul is exhorting us as Christ followers to have this same kind of Christ-like humility that he exemplified. But you and I know embracing that kind of humility is something we struggle with because there is just something in our broken nature that seeks to elevate ourselves above others, to seek our own interests above others, that innate pridefulness where we want to be served rather than to serve. And this was so true of Jesus' own disciples. You know, when you look and read the Gospels and you read it very carefully, you notice there's several times that Jesus catches his disciples bickering among themselves. And you know what the bickering is always about? Who's going to be the greatest? You see, they were so sure that Jesus was going to be a king of this new kingdom of God that was going to be established on earth. And if Jesus was king, and they were the 12 closest disciples, then naturally they're thinking they're going to have the positions of power to rule and reign with him. And so the bickering was always about who was going to get the best position. In fact, there's kind of a rather humorous account where the mother of James and John, Mrs. Zebedee, comes to Jesus and said, can my boys, you know, can they have the two best positions, one on the left, one on the right? And it didn't go over well with the other 10. And so Jesus would use these moments to teach his disciples about humility, the stone of humility. Look what he says in Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you, who would be great among you, must be your servant 
And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus was saying, in his kingdom, in this kingdom, it's a whole new paradigm. It's about ministering from a heart of humility rather than from a heart of self-focused, self-elevating, self-promoting pride. And he demonstrated this truth on the night before he was crucified when he did something astounding. Look at John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return from God. First John sets the stage and he makes it very clear that Jesus knows who he is, that he has come from God, he's returned to, is going to return to the Father, and he has this place of authority. And then there's this next little word. It says, so... So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel about himself. So Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet, and when he does, the disciples are thrown in total consternation. No one's saying much, but everybody is thinking, what in the world is Jesus doing? And it certainly wasn't because the washing of feet was something strange. You see, it was a polite custom that when a guest came in your home, that you would, there would be the ability to have feet washed. You see, they lived in an arid land. They wore sandals. Their feet got dusty. And typically, if there were servants in the house, it would be the role of the lowest servant to wash feet. It was never the position for someone in authority to get down on their knees and wash feet. But Jesus, he takes off his robe. He puts a towel about himself as the lowliest of servants gets down on his knees and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And you know what? It has nothing to do with the dirt on their feet. He was by example exemplifying the importance of humility. He says in John 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right because that is what I am. And since I, your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. He says, do as I have done. You see, the, Jesus knew the disciples would have gladly served him. They would have gladly got down on their knees and washed Jesus' feet. But where they struggle was to wash each other's feet. It was serving one another because that's what the bickering was always about. And Jesus knew that if this giant of pride was not slain in their lives, that they would not be effective in establishing his church here on earth where they would have to minister and serve not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. That they would have to serve to everyone to whom God would bring them into their lives. They knew, he knew, that in order for them to be effective in spreading the good news of salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, they had to embrace the humility that Jesus exemplified. 
And just like the disciples, you and I, we are not immune from pride becoming a giant in our lives. And sometimes it's a very subtle giant where we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought where our pride gets in the way of humbling ourselves and serving, especially when serving requires a sacrifice. Now remember, when Jesus humbled himself, it was a sacrifice for God the Son to sacrifice himself and enter humanity. It required a sacrifice for Jesus to get down on his knees. One who knew he had the authority of the Father, yet he got down and served. It was a sacrifice for God the Son who was holy to become our sin, pay that penalty of death on our behalf on a criminal's cross. It was a sacrifice. And in our relationships with one another, if we are to embrace this Christ-like humility, a genuine humility, it will compel us to serve in ways that require sacrifice. The sacrifice of laying down our pride Serving not just those we deem worthy, but those that God puts into our lives. That cranky coworker, that family member we butt heads with. You see, we have to have the mindset of humility that will put aside what we want to do in the moment and to serve someone, help someone, even though we know that that person would never serve or help us. And the Christ-like humility that we need is also that sacrifice to put in the time and the effort and the dedication to discover and develop those God-given gifts that he has given to us and make that sacrifice to serve with those gifts and abilities, to do God's will in our lives in a way that blesses others, always directing the honor and glory to God. But here is something that is remarkable. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself and chose to serve rather than to be served. Look at what we read as we return one more time to Philippians 2. It says, therefore. We've read all the scriptures that tell us how he humbled himself. And then we read, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name and that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we slay the giant of pride by embracing Christ-like humility, look at the promise that God has for us. Look at 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may what? Exalt you. Another translation says, you humble yourself, and at just the right time, he will lift you up in honor. And when, when he puts his honor and glory on you, you don't have to worry about the giant of pride. See, this is what is this remarkable paradox of our Christian faith. Through humility, we are exalted. We don't have to seek honor and glory for ourselves because when we slay the giant of pride with the stone of humility, when we serve those that God places in our lives, when we are proud of without becoming prideful, God will lift us up in honor. 
When we interact with people with Christ-like humility, God exalts and honors. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we know pride is tricky. It can be such a subtle giant that creeps into our lives. And so this morning, in all humility, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us any area in our lives where pride has become a giant. Areas in my life where I think more highly of myself than I ought. You have gifted me with great gifts and sometimes I begin to forget that they all were given to me by you. Father, I ask that you would forgive me for ways my pride has gotten in the way of my relationships with you where I've pursued the praise of people instead of seeking you. Forgive me for the ways that pride has gotten in the way of my relationship with my family, my friends, those you have placed in my life where I've failed to serve with a willing and a humble heart. You have given our lives great value, Lord. Help us to understand that we choose to humble you, humble ourselves and serve you. It's not from a place of inferiority, but rather from a place in our heart that desires to exemplify this mindset that Jesus so beautifully lived while he was on this earth, this mindset of humility. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.